This episode of DCR is brought to you by World Anvil, an award-winning website offering a wealth of tools for building your next great adventure. Hey, Dungeon Crawler. Thanks for tuning in to our episode this week. But guess what? Did you know there's even more that you could be listening to? If you head over to our Patreon, you can get access to behind-the-scenes content, hearing more of the discussion before and after the show, and even comments in the middle that didn't make it into the final cut. Thank you so much for your support, and keep being great. This is Daniel. And this is Krebs. This is Alton. And I am Matai. And you're listening to Dungeon Crawlers Radio, the greatest geek podcast out there. Hello there, Dungeon Crawlers, and welcome to another exciting episode where this time we bring you a special guest. This man has brought the world to its knees with a global pandemic. He has lost you among a sinking island and deadly sun-baked deserts, finally taking you to a rocket ship. Soaring through the sky, we have game designer Matt Leacock here with us tonight. Yay! Yeah. Yes. Holy moly. Hey, Thank you me. for joining us. So glad to have you here. I'm so excited. Um, these are games that are near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about each one of those things that I mentioned in the uh, intro and some new stuff coming up. So, uh, first of all, for those of you who... Uh, don't recognize the name Matt Leacock. You probably have played some of his games. Matt, do you have a little introduction you'd like to give our uh, listeners? Tell them a little bit about you. Uh, let's see. I'm a game designer. I'm best known for uh, the board game Pandemic and cooperative games in general. Uh, also did a, a series of games, uh, uh, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert, and so on. And I've been designing full games, or designing uh, board games for about nine years now, full-time uh, California. And on that note of making cooperative games, I want to jump on this right away. Cooperative games are absolutely my favorite flavor. I love co-op. Now, I know you had nothing to do with Zombicide. I forgive you. But <laughs> Zombicide is my favorite cooperative game. Or, or, or it has been my favorite cooperative game. But lately, I've been super into like Gloomhaven and Oathsworn. And, and I even love HeroQuest and Descent. Descent, Legends of the Dark is so good. And I wouldn't know... Uh, how amazing these games are if it wasn't for you and your work introducing me to co-op. So thank you for bringing co-op into the mainstream. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad I pulled you in. Um, that's one of my favorite uh, things when people talk about how, it, how the games have brought them into the hobby. It's, it's wonderful. Well, then I think it's entirely appropriate for me to fanboy for just a second here too. Please do, Elton. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, the year was 2011. And uh, uh, I had been invited over by my family to play some board games. I was trying to patch up uh, some relationships there. And they said, we found this new game called Pandemic. And I sat there and I played it. And the game mocked me. And it, <laughs> it vexed me. And I was so close to winning. And so I was like, we have to play again. And we have to play again. I played it five times that <laughs> afternoon. Oh my and then gosh. on my way home to my apartment, I went out and I bought it. And the on the brink expansion that had come out at the same time, but it stuck in my head like glue, and I knew that I had to do something with games. So, thank you so much for that gift. It has unlocked literally a, a full career for me, and uh, so th thank you for that. 
Wow, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Who would have thought losing would be so much fun? It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Well, and the great thing is, I mean, games in general, even when you win or lose, it's it's coming together and having fun. And you know, some of the games you've designed exactly does that. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, I mean, uh, co-ops in particular uh, do such a good job of bringing people together in person across the table with like yeah. a common objective. And I mean, it's it, you've got so many things going for you already right yeah. there, right? You've all yeah. like agreed to play something together, like in person, like mm -hmm. make eye contact, put your phones away. And you all have like, a, I mean, in, in a lot of my games, you have a common enemy. And, and you know, my job is then to just make you feel something. So um, mm -hmm. I'm glad it, glad it worked. You mentioned put away your, your phone. I mean, that seems to be something that's been lost uh, with this, you know, my own kids. You know, they'll sit in a room and they're just texting back and forth. And, you know, and they're always like, why when you're playing games with your, your friends, your phones aren't out? It's like, because I'm focused on that moment with them. And, and I really like the fact with co-op games, particularly everyone's working together for one goal. And I love that. Yeah, I think part of it comes from a, a, a very little downtime, right? So mm -hmm. like you can help comment on someone else's turn. Yeah, and you're like involved all the time. It's not like you're waiting. Oh God, it's you know another what another fifteen minutes from my turn. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go make a smoothie or something. <laughs> it's a very different experience. Yeah. So, in a world full of monopolies and battleships and other trademark titles, uh, where everything is competitive, what inspired you to go down the co-op path? Uh, I think a couple things. So, uh, where to start? I mean, I I think I I learned my lesson about like games that were not co-ops and that I played a negotiation game with my wife, Donna and family, and it went south pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> we played a game called Chinatown and mm. I was pretty good at it, but you, you end up like manipulating people within the game in order to get what you want. The problem is that we all pretend that like there's this magic circle where the game exists in this special place and the stuff that happens in the game stays in the game. But the reality is you know, this stuff bleeds in real life. And uh, I just learned that, you know, certain games don't work well with, with uh, certain people or certain groups. And then conversely, I played Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings when it came out in 2000. Mm. And we played that together. And it's a one of the um, uh, first really exciting co-ops where you could play and, and it offered you true challenge. It wasn't just... Um, let's share and care and this is not going to be very fun but it's cooperative and you know, it's for kids <laughs> kind of thing uh so show me that like cooperative games could be really exciting and i played that with um the family and and you know whether we won or lost it was um really enjoyable and i i wanted to i wanted to see if i could do that i wanted to see if i could create a game that was worthy of people's attention for a while where you know it was basically the game fighting against them rather than them fighting each other so the uh, the games that I got started with were Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert, and I've got mm. Forbidden Sky here too. And I love it because after playing them a couple of times, I realized there's a story here. These kind of connect. Where did this idea come from? There's there's obviously a theme here. Well, I got two questions for you. First yeah, one sure. is. Yeah, is there a better name for these games than the Forbidden series of games, or is that what they're called? That's what I call them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then the second thing is, where did this idea come from for this theme that connects all these games? 
the theme, I think it was like going back and forth uh, with uh, the product manager at GameRight, um, a wonderful fellow named Jason Schneider. We collaborated on the theme for that uh, pretty heavily. Um, initially, my initial pitch was it was a card game with a space theme, um, but that just kind of felt cold. I don't know. We didn't really connect with it as much. Uh, then I tried an Atlantis theme and that felt hard to identify with. And then we just kind of latched onto this, this what you have right here, kind of like a steampunk adjacent, mist-inspired, uh, you know, evocative, mysterious island that uh, has been abandoned for unknown reasons. And as soon as you sat down, it sinks into the sea. So it, it, it just felt very evocative. And C.B. Kanga, the uh, illustrator for it, really brought it to life and mm -hmm. just kind of snapped together oh, really, really yeah. satisfyingly. Yeah. The artwork is amazing on this. And now that you mentioned mist, it definitely has that kind of a feeling uh, to it. And the artwork uh, definitely helps with that. And uh, so our, to, to our listeners, I have a feeling that a good number of you have played Forbidden Island or one of the other games in that series. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. One of the things that attracted me to it is that this game is one of the rare ones. It comes in a metal box. It has wooden pieces and uh, a fantastic storage system already with it. Uh, and that impressed me as a tabletop gamer literally out of the box pun intended uh and um just if you haven't gotten this game or haven't played it yet please uh, do yourself a favor go grab a copy i absolutely agree i'm i'm very curious because it seems like a lot of your games do come with these high quality components is that one of the things that's been part of your design process is that something that you give a lot of input into or is that something that's more broadly part of the brands that you've worked with I think it's more part of the brands that I've worked with. I, I do give a lot of input in, especially these days. Well, I've got a laser cutter down in the garage and I can like comp up stuff. Uh, so I did uh, some of the product design and, and I guess I guess you'd say industrial design for some of the work in um, Ticket to Ride Legacy, which is a game that's coming out soon. And I've got another one I'm working on. Um, I really love that kind of work, uh, three-dimensional work and like looking to see how can the materials can how can they be used in novel ways and really like delight the player on the table? Because that's one of the things that board games promise, right? You get to mm -hmm. feel the components and play with materials and touch them and so on. So that's important to me. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. Especially like you said, it's, it's when, when you design processes, when you design businesses and things like that, you, you try to think about the things that every single person is going to interact with over the course of a process or over the course of a business, right? What are some of the critical pieces of, of the involvement that you've had over the years that have shaped uh, kind of that particular Matt Leacock feeling? So uh, in addition to like games being fun and evocative and making you feel something, um, I really want them to be accessible and I don't want you to be struggling with the rule book. So I, I spent a lot of time in my process doing a lot of blind testing uh, to make sure that like real humans that are not me when I'm not in the room can use the game and actually understand it and grok it and get excited about it. Bless you. Bless you so much. Well, and, and I love that about your games. It's very easy to pick up the rules. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really try to spend a lot of time in is being very careful with the selection of language of the component, like what, what are the nouns and verbs in the game and, and, and then you watch people and and see are are you know I watch a lot of people on video because they 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 play them um, blind uh, they they'll record themselves playing and I'll just see like are they using those terms or are they using something else you know, right uh, how are what's the vernacular what are people expecting um, so that, that's fun as a storyteller to see 
what people are expecting and to mess with those expectations and just learn just by watching all sorts of people uh, play with your stuff. So with the Forbidden series, you've taken us to the Sinking Island. You've taken us to the shifting sands of a desert and in the middle of a, a lightning storm with ferocious winds in the skies. Uh, I understand that there's another Forbidden Place coming out now. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, Forbidden Jungle is coming out this week. Uh, so at the end of Forbidden Sky, you've taken off in a rocket. That rocket takes you to an uh, abandoned uh, space station on a, a, a jungle-covered moon. Um, and you land, your rocket's totally out of fuel, and you're in this uh, overgrown space station that's uh, really been reclaimed by the jungle. And unfortunately mm. for you, it's, it's infested by these gigantic spiders. Um, and so your your job <laughs> is to escape the jungle. <laughs> you have to find a portal to get you out of the jungle, out of this out of this space station. Um, it's not so easy enough just to find the portal. You have to power it up with uh, um, some of these magical gems. So if you can do that, if you can find the portal, get everybody together and power it up, then you can uh, escape the jungle. But uh, you know, of course, the spiders are there and they have other plans for you. So unlike the other, unlike the other forbidden games, like Island has got uh, rising water uh, or sinking Island, I guess. And then you've got uh, the desert with the, the storms, the sandstorm um, and sky's got like falling from great heights. You're being electrocuted. They're all environmental threats. This one's got like real full on spiders that are trying to get you. So they're moving around the board and, and you've got more of a, I don't know, like an embodied uh, antagonist. Every box package with 12 live spiders. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so actually, that, that's, a, that's a question that I had, which is you, you have a theme across multiple games, uh, the Forbidden series. How, uh, how do you gauge when a title in the series is unique enough that it's not just a rehash of one of the previous <laughs> titles? And, and does that get increasingly difficult, or do you have a formula that kind of... It absolutely gets harder and harder as you go. Um, I, I just, I would love for any fan of the series to feel like, feel like they really want to uh, have each one in the series. Like it's got its own role, its own place. It scratches a different itch and so on. At the same time, I want you to be able to pick one of these up and go like, oh, it's a forbidden game and how to play it. So um, yeah, sometimes it can take years before I come up with the, the next one. I'm, I'm very excited about this one because I feel it is definitely different. It follows a lot of the same patterns, but has a... a I feel like you can you can play it and, and feel a lot more creative and the threat also is more menacing and in some fun and exciting ways. So I'm excited to see what people think of it. So when can people expect to see Forbidden Jungle at their friendly local game store? Um, it's going in, a, I think it's in distribution now, just entering. So it should be, I would say this month for sure, sometime this month. So you can check availability online as well. Um, that was great to support your local retailer, though, uh, and see you know your local brick and mortar. So you can call them up and see if they've got it in stock yet. So dungeon crawlers, check the game store for Forbidden Jungle. You won't be disappointed. Absolutely. And you know what? Speaking of well-formed products, we have some incredible sponsors who support the show. And we want to take just a moment to hear what they have to tell you. Now let's talk about our sponsor, World Anvil. World Anvil is an award-winning world-building and writing software for people who like to create rich and exciting worlds. With their software, you can create your world, manage your campaign, plan your novel, and wow your players or readers as you make your worlds come to life. 
You can find them at worldanvil.com. And if you put in the discount code DCR40, you will receive a 40% discount today. Crawlers, thank you so very much for taking time to hear from our sponsors. Hey, Daniel. What? You know, I bought a pair of defective gloves the other day. They were both left gloves. On the one hand, that's great. But on the other hand, that's just not right. Wow. <laughs> Forbidden wow. dad humor, the next game oh, title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. It's a beautiful thing, though. I can't fault you for that. I can't fault you for that. It'd be too heavy handed. Oh, uh, oh, that's it. The gloves are coming off now. If the just, joke fits, you must acquit. There's, maybe I've got, maybe I'm, that's too deep a cut. I don't know. Showing some age there. I just don't Matthew. know where to go with that one. Matthew, did you just say, did you just say too deep a cut after an OJ Simpson reference? Yeah. Oh, that may not have been appropriate. My apologies. No. Um, no. I'm going to, I'm going to edit this so everyone thinks you did that on purpose. <laughs> oh my gosh well hey well oh Krebs I'm gonna challenge you yeah. do you know when, when a sandwich cooks do I know when a sandwich cooks uh, uh mm, no oh when it's bacon lettuce and tomato oh my gosh Matthew <laughs> oh but well there is something I wanted to talk about next it's the uh, giant virus in the room. Um, but Pandemic. It was so interesting because when we discovered Pandemic and we started playing it, got so drawn in to the game and we wanted to play mm-hmm. it all the time. And so I started sharing it with my friends or mentioning it to a couple of people uh, in Facebook posts. And I was so surprised because they've heard of it too. And they played it and they love it. And it was just... We remember playing this game and, and getting this feeling like, you know, this feels kind of similar to some of the mechanics in Forbidden Island. And we went and looked at the back of the box and we go, oh, now I get it. The same guy is behind this. So with Pandemic, and you talked about some of the game design and the constraints that, that you put yourself under. We had Pandemic first edition. Then you had second edition with some additional roles, I believe. You had On the Brink. Um, and in the lab and additional expansions, which just kept adding more and more to it. One of the questions I had was about the roles. Mm-hmm. So these characters that you play in the game, each of them has a special ability unique to them, and it definitely affects the way that you play the game and the, and the way that you can help or not help the team. Some combinations work better than others. So as you, h- how much of a challenge is it for you to come up with a new role with a new ability? I mean, walk us through the process of, of how you come up with these, these ideas. Yeah, I think we're up to uh, at least a dozen, maybe closer to 20 different roles. And then there's other pandemic system games. You mentioned the ones that are disease related, but then there's, there's a whole world of other ones like pandemic mm-hmm. Iberia and rising tide mm-hmm. and so on. Um, uh, I think it's really, I mean, you want a, a collection that uh, feel distinct that, that have about the same level of uh, power because you want you don't want people to say okay well we lost that game because you know we were playing with these roles and they're not as not as good so you want to kind of benchmark them to something 
and then it's great to be able to like satisfy different player personalities. And then, um, you know, as far as the game is concerned, you want to fill different niches within the, uh, the puzzle that the game uh, presents. So it's really just an exploration of that, uh, that space. What's a role that did not make the cut and why? <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's probably dozens of them. They're, they're all probably different cousins of the roles that did make it into the game. Uh, they're like, oh, that was the version of the dispatcher that w didn't quite make it, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's also interesting that like when I did the first uh, base game, I think I had five roles, and I tested it uh, with a group. And I remember the feedback was, wow, we love this game. One of the things we like about it is that we'll, we feel like like this role or this role is necessary, and we play it again with a different mix of people, and we can't play with it, and it, it, it rolls differently, right? You have a different experience. So their strong feedback what, to me was, hey, make sure you have a lot more roles than, uh, than players so that there's always people missing. Um, and so that was a, a bit of a struggle for me. I think I had four roles initially, and then I... I blew it out to five and then eventually seven. And then, you know, we got as many as we have now, but early on, I wasn't sure I could even come invent that many. And, and it just turned out that the game was robust enough that I could keep, keep cooking. Now we've talked about artwork uh, in the games before and the pictures of a lot of these characters are any of the characters or the illustrations in these roles based on people in real life. Oh my God. One is, and I, I hate to out them because the illustration in the first edition of this particular person who I will not name was really terrible. And I felt horrible <laughs> for it. Second edition, no, that was not the case as far as I know in the base games. I think with the, with the newer editions, it like post the core game, like I think um, like Pandemic Rising Tide, uh, which I think is just called Rising Tide right now. There are actually Z-Man team members that are pictured in that. And uh, those those are fantastic illustrations done by Chris Williams. He did a wonderful job on that. And Atta. Wow. I can remember Atta's last name. But they, they did a wonderful job. So I, I think when it was your turn, you could get your your illustration in one of the, the games. Um, and so everybody had to kind of like wait a turn and, and, and get pictured in, in the game. So some of those are real people. Wow. Um, <laughs> Now, one of the things these games are really good at is ramping up the tension. But then you took it a step further. Not only was it anxiety in the game, but you came up with a twist on Pandemic that I think triggers the anxiety of the gamers. It's called Pandemic Legacy. <laughs> and in this game which i absolutely love uh there's a there's two different seasons which are completely different stories for those of you who haven't seen it but one of the things in this is the way that your games go make permanent changes to the game and let me tell you the kind of mental anguish i went through the first time i had to quote destroy a card in that because you're not used to having to you know damaging game components but that's a key part of the game so uh first of all bravo to you thank you for uh raising my my blood pressure and uh <laughs> you know making my doctor give me a new prescription but uh so where I'm, I'm interested in where this came from it absolutely takes pandemic to the next level as a game designer what made you think of essentially breaking the fourth wall here uh, well, I think um, 
I'm trying to think where the root of the idea was. I mean, we were thinking of all the different places we could take pandemic, pandemic uh, dice game, pandemic card game, pandemic legacy game, because Risk Legacy had come out pri uh, before pandemic legacy and uh, was, you know, was it was a hit and really introduced this whole genre. Uh, at the time we were brainstorming that idea, I just kind of laughed it off. I was working at a startup and I had no time for such things. And so the idea just kind of like, I don't know, it. I put it on a shelf. And a few, I think it was a few years later, I started sketching some ideas. I don't know why I was prompted to do it, um, but I, I very quickly started filling up a sketchbook with all these concepts for how a story could evolve um, in this world. And I'm like, I, I got to do this. <laughs> and so I reached out to Rob Davio, who invented the, the whole genre, as it were, asked him if he would be interested in doing a pandemic legacy. And he just wrote back. Uh, I, I remember the email. It had like 72 point type and it just said, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we got in touch and, we, and we've been working together ever since. Uh, it's been like, I don't know, five, six, seven years. We're still working together on, on projects. So uh, it's been a great collaboration. And uh, he's just brought so many innovative ideas and such a great design partner on that series. And now with season one, there was a red version and a black version, if I recall. Red and blue for season one. There's red actually three seasons. There's season one, two, and then a prequel, which is zero. That oh. came out. Uh, yeah. oh, I need to get season zero. Okay. So what what was the um what's the difference between red and blue? Just the cover. That's it. That was the only <laughs> difference. Oh. The publisher at the time was thinking, oh, you might want to have two different uh, copies, one to play with one group and one to play with another group. Um, okay. I don't know. It was like this innovative concept. Um, I'm not sure anyone's actually done that again, but we did that for the first two seasons of Pandemic Legacy. I can say at least in, in the two stores that I've run, I did get specific requests for one or the other for exactly that reason. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, again, there's other considerations in terms of production runs and things like that, but right. conceptually of a, a solid idea. And if you put the four uh, covers together, red, blue, black, and yellow, uh, it does form a giant clock, uh, which then becomes more important in the prequel. I did not know this. Cool. <laughs> and in order to play Pandemic Legacy, does it require that you have a base game and the season, or is it its own standalone kit? It's standalone, so you can open up the game and play it. Uh, there's a kind of like a prequel, you can play the game just as Pandemic as mm -hmm. many times as you want. Get comfortable with the system before you start making those irrevocable cho choices that you'll have to live with for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, when, when you play Pandemic Legacy, do you have a system by which you can simulate the destruction and the permanence of decisions without actually destroying the materials or making the decisions permanent? I have to admit something. I've never played Pandemic Legacy, any of them. I've playtested them, but I've never played the final product. And that makes me sad. I, I think I'm going to wait another couple of years and then try to, you know, maybe I'll forget some things and then I can play it as if it was the first time. But, you know, I know the whole plot. So <laughs> never got in there. I, I did watch my uh, wife and her playgroup play it. And that was wonderful just to see it. And no, we don't reset it. It's all, we just go for it. Awesome. Now, there was one question that I promised my family that I would ask because we started off with Pandemic First Edition and then it went to Second Edition and some of the city names changed. And we were always like, why? We didn't understand why. So tell me mm -hmm. why did Montreal change to Toronto and was there a city in Germany that changed as well? Well, Istanbul was once Constantinople. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. So... <laughs> Hey, that's Where's nobody's that? business but the Turks. <laughs> that's mm, right. Mm. right. 
Uh, the city in Germany has always been Essen, and that's because of the big uh, uh, Spiel uh, fair that everybody just calls Essen right. anyway. Right. Um, so that was a nod to uh, gamers. Uh, the city in Canada went from Toronto to Montreal because uh, Z-Man, the company, was acquired by F2Z Games, which is headquartered in Montreal. So they mm. wanted to put their thumb on oh. it. Yeah, so their thumbprint's on there. Nice. Okay. Nice. I see. I see. Interesting that in a game where viruses are targeting major cities, <laughs> that you're like, you know what we need to do? We need to change this to the owners of our partners. <laughs> you know. So in the course of your years as a as a game designer, have you begun any projects that just didn't feel right and did not make it out uh to market? And and how do you think that uh affected your growth as a game designer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one that stands out vividly. Um, Rob and I, in fact, were working on one earlier this year, and we were just struggling with it. And at one of our video conference meetings, I remember uh, just looking at him and saying, Rob, this isn't very fun. Do you want to just stop? And he's like, yeah. And then we just killed the project right there and then. And we both felt so good. This is after working on it for like, I don't know, maybe three months or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but occasionally you just you, you experiment with something and um, you, you go on a on a run with it. I tend to try to kill them when they're quite young. You know, I, I try, you know, I build up some sort of prototype, get it on the table as soon as humanly possible and see if there's anything there that's working. And if there's no magic there after a day or two, I generally don't let them live much longer than a week uh, because it's it can be a, a really big time suck. So after you find that something does have that magic, what does the iteration process look like from there? I mean, obviously everything's going to be a little bit different, but surely there are mm -hmm. some similarities for you. Yeah, so um, uh, typically I try to make sure that things kind of coherent to myself, you know? I mean, early on, I mean, it sounds kind of strange, but you might just be like chasing some kind of uh, idea that's not fully formed. Um, so it takes a little while to kind of chase that down and, and get it to gel. And if you can get to that point, it's it's a it's a huge milestone. If you're like, oh, I think there's something here and it's exciting. And then the next milestone is like, can I play a complete game? Um, sometimes with other people who are like like being proxies, they might not even know what they're doing. They're they're certainly not having any fun. They're just helping me. Um, and then the next big milestone is like getting a a game you can play from start to finish. And from that point, it's it's really just a, a series of playtesting where the fidelity or like how fine the prototype is gets gradually nicer and nicer. And then the people who are testing it become more and more distant from me. So, you know, it's like friends and family with a very crude prototype early on. And then when you're done, it's like highly polished and people I've never met before um, in some other, often some other state trying it out. Love it. And and how has that process evolved from for you from like your very first design to now, you know, you've been doing this for 20-ish years, maybe a little bit more? Yeah, it's been, uh, I think, I, I self-published a game in 2000. So mm -hmm. I guess about 23 years, if that's the start date. Um, so with that game in mind, uh, in particular, uh, I would just like interrupt people and pandemic, actually, when I first started with that, I, I would just watch people and interrupt them and correct them as they're playing. And I had a design researcher actually I was at Yahoo at the time, like during a lunch break, uh, she's just like, you have to stop that you need to sit in the corner and shut up and let us play. And if we make mistakes, write it down, but don't, don't, don't interrupt us again. And I mm -hmm. took that advice to heart. It really, it really improved my process considerably, and it's you know I've been refining it ever since. 
So when it comes to uh, play testing, I imagine there's some rules you come up with originally, and then you f- then some player comes in and fouls it up. They find some technicality or some loophole that wasn't conceived of originally. Can you give us any examples of of when that's happened and uh, the rules that were made as a result of that? Oh wow, yeah. I mean that always happens. Uh, there's um, the simpler the game, the less likely that's going to happen. So right. like the forbidden games are. Um, there's a couple things that. Uh, maybe it could be a little bit clearer in the rules, but nothing too large. When you get to like a pandemic legacy, there are so many interactions in there. Uh, Rob and I did the very best we could. Um, but uh, at a certain point, you have to like put it up in an FAQ on BGG. And it, some of this stuff is just, I think people just like to find loopholes uh, sometimes. It's like, well, if I have a, if I have a hand and without you know spoiling anything, that's full of these cards that are extraordinarily hard to get one of, right? And I have seven of them, and it's the you know end of a turn, and this happens. What ha- you know? I'm like, at this point, I'm just like, well, do whatever you want. <laughs> you <know? laughs> there are certain cases we're just not going to trap because they're not going to happen. But that said, we do have to do a lot of diligence in that. You know, if the game's going to be p- played um, tens or even hundreds of thousands of times, uh, or in the case of pandemic, millions of times even rare cases are going to show up and we need to have an answer for it. So um, I don't really have the prototypical example. I mean, I I think that uh, one that I've been trying to catch more lately um, is like when a draw pile runs out, like when do you shuffle the deck? Is it when you need a card or when the last card is drawn? That's a a bugaboo that a lot of people really care about. And so I Mm -hmm. I try to pay more attention to it. What's the answer to that? Generally speaking, it's when the card needs to be drawn. Um, but in kids games, I think often kids will actually go and shuffle the deck as soon as it's empty. And I tend to try to support what the majority of the audience will naturally want to do. So I try to try to tailor, tailor the stuff to the audience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to see kind of the, the, the process behind the machine, right? Yeah. Because game design is artistic in nature, but there is a lot of engineering and careful planning that has to go into it. And and even the lessons that you've learned along the way, like you mentioned, of allowing people to just mess up in front of you. As, yeah. as aggravating as it is the first <laughs> few times that you keep your mouth shut and sit in the corner, the amount that you can get out of it by learning how to process information, how to process games, especially when you're dealing with what is essentially a very limited pool of information it's it's really neat to be able to see so yeah i mean uh, you can watch people and you can you can set up a a system that's ingenious and it looks great on paper but then you put in front of humans and to see group after group completely fail and realize oh i I see the solution to this is add 50 more cards and it's like really painful but sometimes that's the right answer (laughs) now we have talked quite a bit about arguably your two most popular ips which is the forbidden series and pandemic but there's a couple more titles coming up in the not too distant future here. What other projects should we be looking for from the great Matt Leacock? <laughs> well, the big one coming out from myself and my co-designer Matteo Menapache is called Daybreak. It's a game about uh, fighting the climate crisis. Um, so you're basically trying to stop climate change. So you know, followed up the pandemic with the climate crisis. So uh, <laughs> uh, unlike pandemic, this one is really deeply researched. Um, so we really hit the books and tried to really deeply understand what's going on with uh, the climate crisis because that was not something that we. Well, I mean, I can't speak for Mateo, but a lot of the anxiety I was feeling about it was that I just didn't really understand it and I couldn't wrap my arms around it, didn't understand how to model it. So in reading that, um, we were able to like come up with a way 
to uh, model uh, like solutions and also represent the problem and the severity and the stakes and all of that. But at its core, what we really wanted to do is create a fun game, a uh, fun, engaging game. And because we knew that we didn't want to make an educational one. We didn't want to force, you know, we, don't, we didn't want to do like chocolate covered broccoli, as it were. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an engine building game um, with a, like, a, you know, like a lot of my games, like a little doom loop in there. And it, can you build your engine like cooperating with the other players? Uh, in order to reduce emissions to prevent like this catastrophe from happening. And so, uh, but it's, it's got all sorts of aspects in it. There's uh, like 150 unique cards. They're all unique illustrations. There's no plastic in the game. Um, we just went to town on it and our, we couldn't have had a better partner than CMYK games on this. And so we're super excited. We, I started this over three years ago and it's coming out this month. So keep your eyes out for it. It's called Daybreak. Sounds awesome. Um, looking forward to that. Uh, so we'll keep our eyes open for that. And then there was another uh, project coming up here. We've talked about uh, Pandemic Legacy. There's another legacy game coming up, right? Yeah. So in November, uh, Ticket to Ride Legacy, uh, Legends of the Waste, sorry, Legends of the West will be coming out. Uh, this is a game I worked on with uh, Rob Davio, who I worked on with uh, Pandemic Legacy, and also Alan Moon, the father of Ticket to Ride. And uh, we spent a couple years uh, developing this one. And then uh, Days of Wonder, the publisher, spent another couple years developing it and like doing all the product design. So it's it's been a long time in the making and it's gorgeous. I, I've been, this is one like, this is the first legacy game that I designed that I've actually gotten a chance to play. I'm almost done uh, playing with my family and uh, really loving it. Uh, so this it's a ticket to ride game that evolves over the course of um, 12 games. And then when you're done, you've got a fully replayable, unique Ticket to Ride set. Wow. I, I, my, uh, my sister and her family are huge Ticket to Ride fans. I can see this. Uh, I can see them reserving space on their game shelf specifically for this game. Uh, oh, come to think of it, Krebs, our sister's birthday is in November. Yeah, yeah, and November is when this comes out. Matt hmm. Leacock, allow me to express my personal gratitude that you chose to release this game just for my sister. <laughs> Thank you so much. Glad she worked out. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you for honoring our friendship like that. Your close personal relationship that my you personal accrued over many, many, many minutes. Close personal compadre, <laughs> Matt Leacock. I, I got it. This one's out for crabs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of close compadres, I believe Krebs, uh, since this is our first time interviewing Matt Leacock, I believe there is a special tradition that we must uphold. Why, yes, you might say there's an actual legacy that we have to honor as we sit down with our dear friend of the show, Matt Leacock. Uh, Matt, thank you so very much for being here. As we were discussing before the show, we are now going to enter the lightning round. That is the little little thing I get to do with new people to the show, or rather new to me people to the show, uh, where I ask you a series of questions, and you just give me your best answer off the top of your head. There is no pressure. You don't have to study. It is not a trivia thing. Matt Leacock, are you ready? <laughs> I, I think so. Fantas <laughs> great. And here we go. What is your favorite color? Green. Are you a pet person? I am. Do you have dog, cat, fish? Birds? I've got a dog. Yeah, I, I, I never had a pet growing up, but uh, the uh, little dog here, Finton, is glued to my side all, all day long. Wonderful. 
Uh, you have made some games that are themed after famous IPs, such as Pandemic Star Wars Clone Wars, which is fantabulous, by the way. Is there an IP that you would like to make a game for or use as a theme for an existing game? There is. I was able to secure it, and I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love these little nuggets that are coming uh, out. I'm going to tell Smurfs right, to keep my eyes open. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not. It's not the Smurfs. There you go. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. And finally, what is your stance on the 1983 sci-fi fantasy film Krull? Have seen it. Uh, I have fond memories of it, but I don't recall a whole lot other than that five-pointed star shape that you'd whistle through the air and stuck into things i guess uh, you referenced the glaive that's like the minimum barrier to entry so that's fantastic all right, all right man awesome. all right and great. you saw yeah. it and you have fun i mean of course it's the glaive right yeah absolutely close friend of the show the glaive um <laughs> did, did you see it as a kid did you see it as yeah. an adult i think i was a kid then uh you were probably a, a kid then probably a teenager probably i'm older than you think i think <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> well, Matt Leacock, thank you so very kindly. This was an awesome show. Loved having you here. Thank you for your time and your generosity. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Thanks. everyone. Uh, again, Matt, thank you for coming on the show, talking about games. We love these games. We've enjoyed them. We've played them together with family and friends, and it's just it's just fun. Uh, go out, support Matt and uh, these other game designers that he's worked with. Uh, by picking up copies so that we can see more fantastic titles from Matt. And with that said, we'll catch you next time. And my favorite little nerdlings, remember to always wash your hands. Wash your dang hands, please. Uh, and let your geek flag fly, so say we all. And Dungeon Crawlers, whether it's listening to the next episode, a previous episode, or joining us at Fanex from September 21st to the 23rd, tell your story, whatever may come. And whether you have saved the world from a wretched virus, or you're just hoping that you don't drown on a sinking island like so many lost people we've seen before, always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this episode, Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find us.